Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. Today we've got a conversation with Azarine van der Fleet Olumi, author of Call Me Zebra, and I am really proud of myself for actually nailing the pronunciation, which oh, Azarine helped me do. It's an amazing name. That name is so Totally beautiful. great name. If I could just gift a child that name, I would. But then probably <laughs> Azarine would not like it. And even better than the name is actually this novel, which I really, in- I mean, I always will love novels about diaspora and exile because I think they allow us to talk about so many contemporary issues, but also the way that they really allow us to talk about how humans construct their sense of place and identity, oftentimes in very disparate ways. You also, I think, really love this novel. I really loved it. Yeah. I've been a big fan of Azarine's for a while, and we had published her in one of the quarterly journals, I think, about a year ago. Mm. And it was a fantastic short story. And I was anticipating something equally great in the novel, and she doesn't disappoint. I mean, I don't quite know how to describe the novel. I mean, I think it's, as Kate said, who's going to be joining us for the interview, it's postmodernist in a way. Right. But it's a female voice, and it is hyper-literary in, in a way that certain novels, they make you want to read more. Of other books. Yeah, I think Um, that's also, and as Dea said, our other co-host, Kate Wolf, is on that interview, even though she's not in the studio with us today. Obviously, it appeals to us because we're all people who have lived a lot of their life through literature. And I think that seeing that represented, somebody who sometimes even to the detriment of having any real engagement with the outside world or with real human beings, except for the like people who are the thinkers and the writers that Zebra is constantly channeling and processing her experience through, obviously very resonant with all three of us. Yeah, for sure. Also, one of the things that happens is that it reminds me of being little and and being completely voracious in terms of what I was interested in, what I yeah. wanted to read. And that the character is very much the same. And you lose track of that a little bit, I think, as you grow older, because you only have so much time. Right. And so it allows you kind of to dive back into that hunger that I at least experienced when I was little. So, and you know, it makes me hungry all over again. All right. Nice. Well, let's dive right into that conversation. Let's do it. We're speaking with Azarine van der Fleet Olumi in the studio today. Azarine is a novelist and the author of 2012's Fra Keeler. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, Granta, and our own LA Review of Books. She is a winner of the 2015 Whiting Writers Award and a National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 honoree, in addition to a number of other prestigious awards. She joins us today to talk about her most recent novel, Call Me Zebra, the tale of a young woman retracing the circuitous paths of her family's exile, armed with the books and ideas that power her way forward. Call Me Zebra was published last month by Hutton Mifflin Harcourt. Welcome to the show, Azarine. Thank you. It's great to be here. Would you mind just reading a little bit of the first few pages for us? Sure. Illiterates, abecedarians, elitists, rodents all, I will tell you this. I, Zebra, born Bibi Abbas Abbas Hosseini on a scorching August day in 1982, I'm a descendant of a long line of self-taught men who repeatedly abandoned their capital, Tehran, where blood has been washed with blood for a hundred years, to take refuge in Nohshar, 
in the languid, damp regions of Mazandaron. There, hemmed in by the rugged green slopes of the Elbors Mountains and surrounded by ample fields of rice, cotton, and tea, my forebears pursued the life of the mind. There, too, I was born and lived the early part of my life. My father, Abbas Abbas Hosseini, multilingual translator of great and small works of literature, man with a thick mustache fashioned after Nietzsche's, was in charge of my education. He taught me Spanish, Italian, Catalan, Hebrew, Turkish, Arabic, English, Farsi, French, German. I was taught to know the languages of the oppressed and the oppressors because according to my father and to my father's father and to his father before that, the wheels of history are always turning and there's no knowing who will be run over next. I picked up languages the way some people pick up viruses. I was armed with literature. As a family, we possess a great deal of intelligence, a kind of super-intellect, but we came into this world one after the other during the era when Nietzsche famously said that God is dead. We believe that death is the reason why we have always been so terribly short-changed when it comes to luck. We are ill-fated, destined to wander in perpetual exile across a world hostile to our intelligence. In fact, possessing an agile intellect with literary overtones has only served to worsen our fate but it is what we know and have. We are convinced that ink runs through our veins instead of blood. Thank you so much. That was really beautiful. Thank Can you, you give our listeners a sense, because it's a very sweeping geographically book. Can you give us a sense of just what the book is about? Yeah, so the main character, Zebra, is basically decides to retrace the path of their exile upon her father's death. Mm -hmm. So she's living in New York City. She's 22. Her father passes away. Her mother dies on their journey on foot from Iran through Turkey. And her and her father go on to live in Barcelona for a few years. And once he dies, she decides to go back and sort of reverse this journey of exile. And in the process, she's writing a manifesto called um, The Matrix of Literature, Philosophy of Totality, and she's trying to... <laughs> light writing. Yeah, really, yeah. and light reading for her. She's really trying to kind of draw together all the different threads of the literature she's been immersed in. There's also a love story, a very sort of obsessive love affair, and that takes place between her and an expat Italian philologist mm -hmm who acts as her foil in the novel. So they sort of drag each other across the Western Mediterranean as she's composing her manifesto. Do you mind telling us a little bit about your story? Are you yourself an exile? Yeah, or do you consider I, yourself I one? do, I do. I sort of consider myself as someone who's also inherited the emotional trauma of exile and someone whose life has been really shaped by you know, the Iranian revolution and the fact that my father is an Iranian, my mother is, but they met in Tehran and my father is a sea captain and has a nomadic tendency himself. So there were lots of sort of spontaneous moves that happened in our lives. So there was a very kind of intermittent nature to my life. I grew up in, in Iran and the Emirates, Europe and the States. Mm. And, you know, we would often leave someplace pretty abruptly, land somewhere else, learn a new language, and then move again. Can you talk about, because the book does deal with zebra, and also as you're talking about your own story, I'm wondering if there's a resonance there as well, the kind of ambivalent feelings that 
circulate around exile. On the one hand, it can be a sense of freedom, right? I pick up and I move and like home is mobile. And in a world that's structured by precarity, that actually can be an incredible asset. On the other hand, it can also be like really debilitating and feeling of rootlessness or like one doesn't really belong. So can you talk about how that functions? Because that does become a little bit of a crisis for Zebra at times. Right. This feeling like she's not quite in one place or another and doesn't really belong is always Mm -hmm. in betwixt and between. Yeah, I think that both those sets of feelings are definitely part of the experience of exile, at least for me. I don't think there is a kind of global experience of exile that, you know, I would lay claim to in any way. But for for me, it's sort of been an experience of deep homelessness or rootlessness and a kind of sense of annihilation and reinvention. I mean, to sort of speak back to your first point. And I think Zebra helped me to explore that. And she sort of pushes it to an extreme and survives through excess through these kinds of philosophical ruminations, but also this very boisterous sense of humor that she has allows her to sort of confront this question of how do I know that I really exist? What proof do Mm -hmm. I have that these lives that I led in these spaces were real? And part of her journey of retracing is trying to re-encounter the ghosts of those past selves and, you know, weave those parts of the self together and to become integrated, hopefully, right? Even though I think rightfully she refuses to sort of erase the gaps or fissures in her identity. And she also has literature, you know, she has this huge sweeping generations of work to kind of look to as well. Right. Um, Maybe you could talk about the role that reading and literature play in her character? Yeah, sure. So she reads a lot and she has a sort of specific philosophy for the way that she reads texts side by side, um, moving between, for example, you know, the original Don Quixote and then Borges's version and Kathy Acker's version. And in doing that, I think she's trying to enter a space where there is a lot of difference without coercion or a space where different literary traditions can coexist side by side in conversation in a way that's sort of spontaneous and liberating for her. And the part of the reason why she reads so much is also in order to become embodied again. It's the process through which she's able to lay claim to her body and her mind in a world that's really acting upon her with forces that are pretty negative or full of erasure. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about your past and you've lived all these places, you've learned all these languages out of necessity. But in the beginning of the book, it sounds like just a mark of erudition that she would know Mm -hmm. so many languages and speak them. But when you say all the places you've lived, it sounds like almost literal, the amount of languages that that she speaks, you might truly speak. Well, I don't know. She, I think right. she speaks about 10 or 12 languages. <laughs> so, uh, I speak I'm, about half that number. Okay, well, <laughs> which is pretty good by American standards. Yeah. Right, um, right. And how about in a Persian tradition of reading and literature and history? That's something I thought, you know, mm. here that seems more specialized. And I was wondering in Iran if that is more, just if education plays a more common role or mm-hmm. literature kind of woven throughout life if literature is more woven throughout life mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. traditionally in the United States it's less academized education is something that Iranians tend to value quite a bit and regardless of where we were my mother was 
I think, really wonderful in the sense that she pushed us to learn the language. She never let us off the hook in that way. It didn't matter how long we would be someplace. And sometimes we would, you know, when I was in Iran for a while, I was put in Italian school. So I grew up speaking Italian while living in Iran. And English for a while took second place, right? But there's also, I think, a sense of poetry in Farsi. And people will speak in these very circuitous ways. There's a lot that's being implied between the lines. There's a kind of quotidian use of the metaphor And the language just has a beautiful cadence to it and a lot of different words for expressing love or grief. And that's something that I think Zebra carries inside of her. And I think part of her struggle with emoting is that she is experiencing emotions within one cultural parameter and having to express herself or her interiority in a very different cultural parameter with different rules and expectations for appropriate expression of emotion. So that's part of her struggle of coming into herself, for sure. Would you tell us the languages that you speak? Sure. I speak Farsi, and I think I speak English. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. Pretty well. I speak Spanish and Italian, and I learned Catalan. You know, I always had it in my ear as a child, but I really learned to speak it while I was in Catalonia, though I've lost it since. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of, you know, somewhere on the fringes. I would need to recall it. And is there a language that you find yourself reaching for to express particular things that you are? So let's say, mm-hmm. you know, she has this disjunction between where she is and how she's expected to communicate and perhaps her in- interiority. Are there links where you find yourself, you know, you reach to Farsi to express grief. Mm-hmm. You reach to Catalan to remember it or whatever. Do you have that? Yeah, I do. I think that's actually part of why I'm so meticulous about the sentence is that I'm thinking on different emotional levels constantly and I'm trying to integrate these cultures that are really contradictory. They might have some overlap more than we might expect, right? But at the same time, one language can be severe or austere in a certain emotional department compared to another. So I think part of the reason that my reading habits are what they are, I'm constantly reading across literary traditions, Mm -hmm. European, Middle Eastern, Asian, you know, English, is because I'm trying to marry those things together and sort of, I think English is a wonderfully elastic language. The units are pretty simple, so you can reorganize them easily and stretch them out. So in a, in a sense, I'm reaching for all of those languages through English. And the subtext, I think, ends up being particularly charged psychologically because of that in my work. Can you talk about the uses of literature for the character of Zebra? Because there's a way in which, I don't want to give too much away, but there is a moment in which it becomes clear that she is in many ways, wedded is not the word that I want, but she is very bound to literature as a way to express life, to interrogate lives. But that in an odd way kind of allows her also to keep real people at bay, right? And I think that anybody that is a very dogged reader or a writer, there is a way that you live with either the characters that you create or the characters that you consume in fiction or in philosophy, what have you they become almost more real to you Mm -hmm. than actual people. And I think all the time about how literature is on the one hand, 
a wonderful escape, but it is also sometimes a barrier that we throw up to actual relationships in the world. So how does Zebra kind of negotiate that double-sidedness, the freedom and the prison that literature can sometimes be? I think that she's in the process of negotiating it throughout the novel. And in a sense, literature does act as a defense mechanism for her, but it's also the very thing that allows her to stay alive. So if you think about Shehrazade, right, Thousand and One Nights, and her ability to tell stories and, you know, to continue to perpetuate the narrative is directly linked to her survival. And Zebra, as an exiled body without any real tethers to the world because she's lost everyone, has to survive through literature to some degree. So it sort of acts as a defense mechanism, but without it, she would crumble. And she does begin to let Ludo Bembo in (laughs) over time. And I mean, their relationship, I think, is really hilarious in a lot of ways, but also just dark and beautiful and honest in the way that they experience conflict and desire. And in the final passages of the book, I think she's beginning to imagine a future in which she could do the kind of work of excavating her buried past or buried selves and all of our buried communal histories Mm. through literature with another human being, and that there is that possibility of these brief, hopeful encounters that she might be able to cultivate. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Azarine Vanderfleet Olumi, author of Call Me Zebra. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Julia Sisa, author of Jealousy, A Forbidden Passion, in the studio with us today. And Julia, you're here to give us a book recommendation. What book will you be recommending? I would recommend the book, which can become a sort of sentimental education for all of us, even if it looks or it sounds untimely, which is simply Marcel Proust's Remembrance of Things Past, This book, for me, remains a sort of uh, open template of situations, nuances, linguistic variations on the experience of love. And I'm hard-pressed to think of a phenomenology of love that would be more sophisticated and actually more actual. Why phenomenology? Well, I think that with Proust, we really have this combination of honesty, courage, and humility that allows you to to accept, to name, and to translate into words your experiences, even if they are uncomfortable, even if they are an expression of your fragility, your vulnerability, you approach them as precisely phenomena, as things that appears come to your consciousness. It's difficult. It's a struggle. It might be a source of embarrassment, but still you stick 
to that fundamental desire to take this out and face up to it and somehow symbolizing in all our experience of love and of amorous jealousy, I think that the important act is the speech act. Interesting. The fact of coming to say what you feel that is sometimes the most difficult thing and at the same time the most potentially liberating and healing and reparative thing. Can I ask you when was the first time that you read Proust? Proust, oh, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's a very fond memory for me. I read it first in an Italian translation the first volume by a great Italian novelist, Natalia Ginsburg, and then I read it in France, and I read it during my first long trip to France during a summer many, many years ago, and I still remember the smell of those uh, little books that I bought. Um, they were sort of small editions. The paper was a bit yellow and the experience of reading was an absolute revelation. I can see that and I can say that my sentimental education was really somehow transpiring, emerging, evaporating from the pages of those books. And I've never encountered anything, not in my life and not in reading, that somehow contradicted the intelligence and the wisdom of those remembrances. Thank you so much, Julia, for that beautiful recommendation. Would you actually tell us the title in French, please? Marcel Proust, à la recherche du temps perdu, Remembrance of Things Past. Thank you so much. That was Julia Sisa author of Jealousy, A Forbidden Passion. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Azarine van der Fleet Lumi, author of Call Me Zebra. talk about the process of writing her as a character and giving yourself permission to make her not always the most likable character right um because she comes off as fairly pretentious at times <laughs> yeah and, certainly and she can be mean to other people and, <laughs> <laughs> and she seems nothing like you so obviously that's a good thing <laughs> <laughs> not that i know you well but i would assume so how was it really fun was it difficult? Did you ever have to kind of rein in feelings of wanting her to be a more likable character? No, not a more likable character. I I think it took a long time to find her. It, it was a very tortured process. I mean, it really took seven years to write this book. And Ludo was the first character who appeared to me. And mm. I wrote the ending fairly quickly. And then I just kept rewriting it, rewriting it, rewriting it. And, and and then it just took probably, you know, 600 pages of drafts that I threw away to figure out Zebra because either she was so mischievous and capricious or she was just completely invested in this manic experience of grief. And I couldn't figure out how these two 
parts of her were speaking to one another. I couldn't marry them for a long time. And once I figured out that she was both of those things all the time and that her hysteria, her sense of humor was deeply connected to her sense of the absurd, I just had to let her be what she was. I couldn't, and I still don't judge her, you know? I, I When other people say, you know, she's, she's quite annoying at times. <laughs> <laughs> I, that hasn't sunk in for me yet, huh. you know, because huh. I've been sitting with her for seven years. I just allowed her to take over. I couldn't negotiate with her. She's not the kind of character you can negotiate with as a writer. And I had to l- let her take over and be there f- for her voice in a really big way. Mm-hmm. And it was difficult. It was physically difficult. I sat for hours and hours at my desk the last couple of years. And she also made me laugh a lot. So, you know, she, she gave me treats along the way. That's good. Yeah. 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 It's funny to hear you. Uh, hear you talk about her as somebody who seemed to have control rather than the other way around. I think that's true. You know, it's a negotiation process when you're writing and different books are, for me, you know, I sort of go stupid when I'm writing. There's something else that takes over. Mm -hmm. I don't, I work really hard to get to the place where the characters are alive to me, but then it's really like transcribing a voice. It's interesting to hear that you go stupid because there's a part here where you talk about metabolizing literature and reading books over and over. It's an instruction that uh, Zebra gets from a professor, Mm -hmm. right? That she has to read. She can't just read it once. She has to read it many times in in different Mm -hmm. places. I think that there's something about characters that are written as, you know, as very educated or very erudite people that there's just no way to fake that. You can't really Mm -hmm. write a smart character if you're not a very educated author, I don't think. Mm. It's interesting how authentic her intelligence sounds. So I was wondering about your background in terms of what you, you know, if you were a student of literature, um, how much you've studied, how how much you've read, because it definitely seems like your yeah. reading has been so fundamental. It has been fundamental. I mean, I do read a lot and I think maybe more than a lot, I read a very wide variety of things. So I'm really a curious reader. I read medieval literature and Renaissance literature and, you know, sort of classic Islamic philosophy, though I might only understand 20% of what I'm reading. Mm. And, you know, I also am a big lover of Latin American literature. Right. That's a huge okay. influence in this book. And, and the professor Morales is, is a Chilean exile who was also, he's a quite a quirky, eccentric character who was an ex-confidant of Pablo Neruda. And he's telling her to read original manuscripts versus later editions of the works and in different languages because I think that she and he both see reading as an act of translation constantly. You're constantly translating the self. The texts are constantly translating your understanding of the world and reflecting it back to you. And that's why literature is so transformative. And I do see it in that way. And yeah, I read. I'm a slow reader, but I read a lot. And how much do you remember of what you read? Or how do you keep track of everything you read and then find a way to use it in the novel? I took meticulous notes and I had piles, you know, for a while I was, I left to go stay in this cabin in Michigan because I wasn't isolated enough in South (laughs) Bend. I just needed to be just alone with my dog. And I had stacks and the stacks were Iranian intellectual history, Catalan writers, history books about Spain. And then I had 
the philosophical books, so Nietzsche, Camus, etc. And as I was reading and underlining and copying uh, certain quotes into my into my notebooks, I just started to see these threads. You know, there's sort of threads about mustaches, for example. There's a lot of funny <laughs> stuff in this book, right? And or um, really kind of threads about the literature of the void, the literature of exile, silence and sound, things that Kafka and Beckett, Nabokov, you know, Kutzi would all th think about or write about. And um, yeah. I, I wonder if, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking, so I'm, I'm rewinding to when you're talking about reading medieval literature and like these Islamic philosophy, and uh, you, you kind of take from all different periods and types and practices and, mm -hmm. you know, both like fiction, but also literary theory, philosophical theory, all of that stuff. I'm wondering if that is in some ways a kind of exile literary practice, that it's one that draws from the wide diversity of everything that you have at your disposal or that you're moving through and like how that informs your own writing itself. So not just the character, but like your own writing practice. Like, so even mm -hmm. if, for example, medieval literature didn't end up making it into this book, though a lot of other literature does, um, you know, like what do you take from that stuff? Like yeah. what is your reading practice, I guess? Right. I mean, actually, Dante, who would be, you know, the biggest medieval writer in this book is a huge part of sort of the way that she thinks about being lost or being in exile. Sure, yeah. And I mean, she has a very kind of humorous and very oblique treatment of Dante or Cervantes, but they're definitely big presences for her, or all the big epic narratives. And there's a kind of feminist critique happening in the book around that as well, because mm. she sort of considers herself this, you know, very sort of heroine who can do what you know, happens in the Odyssey and in Don Quixote and Dante all in one trip. And I mean, it's right. a ridiculous idea, right. but she is kind of a, a baboon in some way, <laughs> you know. Um, so, so maybe she has to be that way in order to, to hazard be. it. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And in order to take the risks she yeah. takes. But to, the reason I'm so fascinated by medieval literature is it's because it was sort of happening in a time before the nation state. And the world was incredibly cosmopolitan and, and transnational. Mm. There was this huge circulation of ideas and texts from the East to the West, you know, via, you know, Greek or Latin translations. And I think we were under the impression that globalization is a really contemporary thing. Right, and that's yeah. kind of a big myth. And Which has been exploded in a lot of medieval studies scholarship exactly. of, of the last like 10 years. Right. Yeah. That's right. And and so, you know, for her, she's comfortable in that space, in the space of sort of this, these maybe more flexible or softer boundaries, this deep regionalism, um, and it responds to her identity as a transnational hybrid body. And so moving, though, between medieval and contemporary, I find is kind of considered a pretty transgressive thing. I teach classes like that, and the students are often confused. But once they see these literatures speaking to one another and responding to each yeah. other, something incredible happens. And you realize on the level of human neuroses, really not much has changed. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, that the, 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 our context shifts, our technology, our sense of spatiality and temporality might shift. But, you know, we're just sort of grappling with similar things. All, you know, we find the same things funny and, you know, the same things grotesque, et cetera, et cetera. This might be a really big question, but within that, within that conceptualization of the book, love is 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 in there, is mm -hmm. in there as well, and it begins with this 
this love for her, her father and her mother. Um, and there are points at which when when she needs to stop feeling, she it, I think uh, the sentences are um, that her heart folds like an envelope. Mm-hmm. Um, but then she meets Ludo. Um, in, in what sense or how would you conceptualize something like love, right, the affective, the amorphous, mm-hmm. the um, also borderless, global, et cetera, within a more, the more intellectual structures of the book? Mm-hmm. Why, why, I mean... Why love? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, sort of why love in some ways, right? Because, yeah. um, because in some ways, philosophy can be enough. Mm-hmm. Philosophy mm-hmm. and adventure is enough. Right, uh, mm-hmm. like you mean but, enough in relation to romantic love or love in general? Um, I mean enough in terms of making a book whole. Mm. We can read a book of philosophy mm-hmm. without requiring there to be love in it, mm-hmm. right? And and feel feel complete within that. Sure. Um, so why give her love as the sort of thing that creeps in between the the more intellectual structures of her world? I think because that's her biggest struggle. Mm. I mean, in so many ways, this is a book about love. It's a book about learning to love, learning what it means to realize you haven't been loved. You know, what does it mean to love in a way that's nurturing to yourself and someone else? And how do you love when you can't necessarily prove that you exist, when you don't have access to the good life, you know, to use Judith Butler's language. There's so much love in her language, too. Mm-hmm. And those are fundamental questions. I mean, she can't really exist, I don't think, without learning to love. I think she would wilt. She has a lot of suicidal ideation as a result mm-hmm. of it. And I think, yeah, Ludo gives her that possibility of of encounter without erasing her differences or their differences. And it might not always be true, but I think she's probably a character who's moving toward the idea that it's enough to have those moments and that that can be enough to carry you over the next obstacle or the next speed bump. Is love in that sense, I almost wonder, this is just thinking off the top of my head, but is is love in in Zebra's experience, also threatening because it puts at hazard the kind of self that you have built. Because a lot of her story is about loss, and mm-hmm. there is a way in which love, even though we oftentimes, maybe this is my own like weird perspective on love, but that we oftentimes think about it as union, as like a coming together mm-hmm. or a shoring up, love also dramatically alters you mm-hmm. in a number of ways. And mm-hmm. so for somebody that has experienced so much traumatic loss, and um, dishabitation, all of that type of stuff. Um, is love also threatening because another person can change you and put you at risk for more loss? I think that's a great question. Yeah, that's definitely part of it. And I think she's in a sort of um, preservation mode, right? Yeah. Like you said, so much of her has been altered by the world without her control. Right. So if she can... And she's on a mission to recover what has been lost to herself. And if she can protect the tiny little plot of land that she gets to put, you know, ground under her feet with, then why let someone else in? And Ludo is a tough character, too. He's really (laughs) complex and sometimes manipulative, really funny, totally erotic, you know, and 
And I think that the she, way all great lovers are. Yes, yeah. right. I mean, they have this intense desire for each other that's really physical and intellectual. And but she doesn't know how to let him be different. And I think he doesn't know how to let her be either. And the thing mm-hmm. is that she she recognizes that his feelings of being an other or an expat are buried because he can't handle it. He can't handle touching it versus she just has to go straight into the into the core of the fire. And if she burns up in it, she's to her, that's more sort of that's the right thing to do. Um, that's how you lay down the record. Right. So there, there's tension between them in that sense as well. Um, well, let's just end it there. Um, that was, uh, we've been speaking with Azarine van der Fleet Ulumi, author of Call Me Zebra, out last month from Hutton Mifflin Harcourt. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Thank you.